Oh, so you like listening to podcasts, huh? Well, so do a lot of people. As a matter of fact, millions of listeners are tuning into podcasts every week, and your next customer could be one of them. Did you know that podcast advertising is one of the most effective ways to advertise your product or service? And it's really easy to get started. Just go to podbean.com slash brands. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands to start boosting your business with podcast advertising today. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. The federal government's released the National Plan to End Violence Against um, Women and Children in a Generation. So that was their plan that was released. Um, and then they've released some action plans underneath that. Uh, and I think uh, with those action plans, there was a lot of focus, again, on intervention, early intervention and crisis. And that recovery was just, there was nothing really actionable or any funding attached to it. So I think um, getting government to actually attach funding to it. And also, I would say like a lot of, um, because we're so used to funding the same thing, it's hard to open and broaden our horizon when it comes to funding. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. If you're enjoying Humans of Purpose, we've got a free trial of our gold membership just until the end of the month, where you can see how you like getting your own dedicated podcast feed, early episode release, removal of all ads, full transcripts on every episode, my private audio note with background commentary and insights on each episode, broken introductions to any of our 300 plus podcast guests, and more. To take up this great offer, just head to humansofpurpose.supercast.com or hit the link in our show notes. Before we kick off today's episode, a quick content warning that the episode today involves discussions relating to family and domestic violence in Australia that some people may find disturbing. If this is something you'd rather avoid, feel free to give this week's episode a miss. My guest today is Tasnia Alam Hanan. Tasnia is the co-founder and chief operating officer at the Arise Foundation. The Arise Foundation focuses on the empowerment and financial freedom of survivors of financial abuse through no-interest loans, employment, training, and job placement, wraparound support services, and advocacy. As we know too well, an uncomfortable reality we continue to face as a society is a continuing increase in levels of family and domestic violence. A key component that the Arise Foundation focuses on is reducing the economic barriers and putting supports in place to enable survivors to break out of cycles of violence. I found Tasnia's background, insights, career trajectory and bold leap into this space to be really powerful, inspiring and worth absorbing and reflecting on. She's adopted a novel and effective approach at the Arise Foundation at tackling a problem that is getting bigger rather than smaller as we speak. Some of the statistics Tasnia and I discussed in the episode are damning, and there is a lot we can do to learn more about the problem, the Arise Foundation's approach, and what what role we can play in working towards a healthier society. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tasnia as much as I did. 
Asnia, thrilled you could be with me today. How are you traveling? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Mike? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, relatively sunny here. Are you Sydney? I am in Sydney and we've been having incredibly hot weather this week. And you're, com- you're I just spoke to a Sydneyite and you seem to be complaining a fair bit about that. So are you a hot weather <laughs> fan or not? I am. I am. But I am fearful of what the summer holds when we're only in spring and we have 35 degrees. Fair. Fair, plus the hottest uh, winter ever recorded, apparently. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, getting beyond the elevator chit-chat, um, you're here for a reason. First, let's jump into your journey and hear a little bit about um, everything before and leading up to the Arise Foundation, because it'd be great to get a sense for who you are, what you've been through, and what drew you to this sort of space. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, So my journey here, um, I've got an education background of finance and law. And then following um, my degrees, I worked at PwC and then most recently I worked at New South Wales Treasury and that's where I got involved in a lot of public policy work and um, providing advice on um, investment decisions regarding infrastructure but also a lot of social policy. And within my role there, I... um, I came across a lot of the investments and what what New South Wales was focused on. And I saw that then when it came to social policy and domestic and family violence, there was a lot of money spent towards crisis, which is completely right and, um, you know, rightfully so. Uh, however, there was nothing really, we weren't really um, counting on what happens next. So we were going through a really big transformation within New South Wales Treasury where we were, um, instead of measuring outputs, we were going to go transfer into something called outcomes budgeting, where we were basically going to be measuring what are the outcomes um, that our money is going towards. So that was one part of it. Uh, And um, when when looking at the outcomes framework and outcomes budgeting, uh, what I realized whilst working at Treasury is that um, when we're funding significantly and rightfully um, crisis services when we're we're measuring outcomes on, you know, how many women were housed, for instance. And I was very reluctant to see how we were sometimes double counting when it came to, um, you know, say for domestic and family violence, um, you have person X leave a violent relationship and they go to a shelter. That person... um, Obviously, the outcome is met because you've helped that person. Um, that person then, due to financial dependency or, you know, just their mental well-being or whatever pressure they're on at the moment, they'll go back to perpetrators. And you can see out there the statistics is it takes about six to seven times before a woman actually re- leaves for good. So they will go back to perpetrators and then they'll come back again when they experience another violent incident. And there we're measuring the outcome twice because we're saying, oh, we've housed this person, um, but you've housed them again within the 12 months. So <laughs> what, what is actually happening yeah. to, like, yep. nothing really? We're, we're, it's, it's, it's sort of like measuring recidivism, but then, you know, if they come back to jail, you know, a number of times in absolutely. that bracket, I mean, how much recidivism has there been? <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So that yep. was one of the um, parts that I was very, um, really you know, I wanted to see and do further market research on that. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, I worked at New South Wales Treasury for about four and a half years. And um, I also uh, had uh, someone I know experience domestic and family violence. And she was reluctant to leave her perpetrator due to the fact that she couldn't financially support herself or her children. 
So that's when I did further market research and I was like, okay, well, what is the financial means for these people um, for them to leave for good? And there was really nothing out there at the time. Mm. So this was around 2020, mm. 2021, around then. Um, and, yeah, so there was really nothing around it. It was a lot of crisis services, um, but there was nothing on how can we help these people next? What what happens in the recovery yep. stage after crisis? So that's when, um, you know, I went to my co-founder who was a family friend at the time and she was on a career break. And I, I, I talked to her about this and um, she was really keen to help me, you know, come up with a business plan. And then we, um, she was also going as in, she also knew someone that was going through domestic family violence. And then um, it was a passion project for both of us. And then that actually turned into an organization, which we created, which was Arise Foundation, helping survivors of domestic and family violence in the recovery stage and really focusing on the financial independence aspect. And it was really coincidental because a year after we had started our organization, there was a report released by Dr. Ann Summers um, called Violence or Poverty, which really delved into the detail of um the women face two choices when it comes, a um, majority of women, when it comes to surviving domestic and family violence, have two choices. They either mm. go back to violence because of financial dependency or they go into poverty. Um, and so here we're like, okay, well, our Rice Foundation, we're offering these women a third choice and ha- enabling them to have um, sustainable financial independence. So, yeah, that's, that's, fast- that's like quite fascinating just I mean because I think people might not understand that I mean I certainly wasn't aware of that um enormous return rate to troubled situations where where there's violence occurring in the home I I, I suppose I'm one of the less educated who thought once a, um, a victim of domestic violence um, goes to a shelter then that breaks the cycle and box tick. So it's great to hear the inside perspective that it really can be a lot about um, economic empowerment um, as well as domestic violence and that that link between the two. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I would have thought Treasury, um, being how they are, might sort of say, okay, um, our study is here's the number of uh, amount of money that it takes to ensure um, economic independence and that a woman will not, uh, a, a victim will not return to the home. <laughs> I imagine yeah. that would be like the blunt method of um, calculating that kind of factor. But obviously, so much more of it goes into it, doesn't it? And that Absolutely. idea of, can you speak a little bit to that idea of economic empowerment in that context and what it means? Yeah, so for us, um, economic empowerment really means that someone is able to support themselves financially, independently, without being dependent on um, another individual, or even that dependency on Centrelink, I feel like is not economic empowerment. So having the ability completely on your own, where you are earning money, that is economic empowerment. Mm. So it might be skills, training, job placement, um, yeah, and not so not being yeah reliant on uh, government agencies or or a violent spouse or partner. Absolutely, yeah. So um, yeah, our 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 uh, method of economic empowerment is through employment. Yeah. So is it the case then that um, as a solution to those experiencing domestic violence, we actually can't solve the problem without addressing the, the other half or the other significant portion, which is the economic empowerment aspect in a way such that it might be a blunt approach to just focus on removing the person from a setting of domestic violence? Um, I would say it's economic empowerment is one part of it. And it really is 
um, as you would know, when it comes to the whole social impact sector, it's about systems thinking and systems change. And economic empowerment is definitely one part of it. Um, ensuring that they have the basic needs of a house over their heads, um, some sort of, you know, ability to feed themselves, et cetera, basic needs is part of it. But then there's all these other facets around it as well to ensure mm. that we can break that cycle. It's, it's almost a little bit Maslowian in a way, isn't it? Sort of like meeting, the, I mean, it's just basic needs theory, a lot of it, and a lot mm. of it is shelter, safety, uh, food, nutrients, and then um, economic independence is sort of like the next ladder up, isn't it? It's the next letter up, but it's so important and to ensure that breaking of that violence and also intergenerational violence because we've seen numerous of our women that have gone through our program that a lot of their children mirror the behaviour of the perpetrator because they stay in that relationship for so long. Yeah, so this is something that um, the return to that setting actually has a significant intergenerational and economic impact to society as well, a negative impact. Yes, Absolutely. And let's talk about some of these damning statistics because they're absolutely terrifying. I mean, when, when I did a bit of background research on this, I'll just read some of these out and just to sort of set the scene for our listeners um, as to prevalence and, I guess, um, depth of the problem and cost. 623,000 women and men were subjected to financial abuse in Australia in 2020. 93% of Australians believe that there are significant barriers to seeking support. Mm -hmm. 79% of Australians cannot recall any support available for financial abuse and a $5 billion cost to the economy in 2020 of this problem. Yeah, that's right. And that was very recently. um, Like these statistics are very recent. So one was by... Um, Commonwealth Bank and the other one was by CBA actually um, commissioning Deloitte uh, to do a, a deep dive into economic abuse in Australia. Let me um, pivot slightly because, you know, going going from the scary to sort of the personal in a way, I mean, what sort of motivation or what drove you to sort of take that leap to start a foundation to directly tackle this problem? Um, because you could have been quite comfortably, um, you know, staying, you know, you've gone from PwC, you've got a really strong, you know, educational and ac- academic background. Um, you could have stayed at the, the Treasury. Um, so what was it that really made you say, I need to really take action here? So as I said, um, I did have that research background in Treasury, which enabled me to understand what there needs to be something done. Um, the the fact that I had witnessed someone go through domestic and family violence, specifically financial abuse, um, and reluctant to leave. And I thought, oh, well, there are then many women in Australia that are reluctant to leave. Um, so there needs to be something done. Um, the fact that there was nothing really out there and it wasn't a focus after crisis, post-crisis recovery. Um, and also, I'm very fortunate I... Um, And it was uh, serendipitous because I had my co-founder who was also passionate and really keen to support me. um, And we both wanted to do this together. And so I think without her, I wouldn't have made that leap. Her her corporate and commercial background was significant where I was like, I know I can trust her and she can trust me and we can actually build something together. So, yeah, and and as we know, like when these things are done in partnership, they're so much more successful too. So that's massive. Yeah. What what were some of the early challenges you faced in in starting Arise Foundation? Um, Some of the early challenges, uh, well, being new to the sector, definitely. Um, So if someone is, um, and and I think it's still a challenge. So being new to the sector when you don't have the established, um, you know, grounding or foundation people how can you establish that credibility and validity so 
that would be um, definitely something um, that was challenge, especially because both my co-founder and I, we were from a corporate commercial background and we weren't really from a social impact or not-for-profit background. So a lot of people were like, why are you in the space? You know, What that, are you doing here? Yeah, this is not your background. So um, that was definitely a challenge. Um, but I think that also was a benefit because having a lens from industry and the corporate and um, that helped us build a rise really quickly. And, um, you know, my co-founder, she has, um, you know, finance strategy and governance. So she ensured that our governance was completely well. Um, we had policies in place and everything. And from my government background, I could develop programs. So we had programs that were already developed, ready to go as soon as we started. So that was also a benefit. So uh, the challenge would definitely be establishing that credibility initially. Um, and um, yeah, and and getting people to trust trust us that we're doing something. And so, yeah, obviously, like you're going to be seen as the maybe the corporate newbies coming into a space that's so grassrootsy. How, how important for you was that sort of cross sectoral and, and like intrasectoral collaboration, both in the not for profit space, um, across the board, um, you know, uh, corporates, you know, different different sort of stakeholders, government. How has that all gone for you? And any tips or secrets uh, to, of your success to date in sort of making those um, partnerships or collaborations work well? Absolutely, I think it's it's been a huge benefit for us. So having my government experience and background has enabled us to open doors and networks within government for government to understand what we're doing and like why we should exist. Um, but also our uh, our relationships we've had in corporate as well has enabled us to establish partnership. Um, say for sponsorships and also employment pathways. I think that's a big one. So we've actually been able to partner with corporates to enable them to have a CSR target for them, but then also hire our um, uh, the rise women. So having so that that aspect as well. So I think in in um, when you want to create social impact, the um, the collaboration between business, um, social enterprises, not for profits, and government is key to actually having a successful outcome. And so the the scale of the problem here is significant. And I suppose the challenge would be, you know, like how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So, <laughs> so but you also want to do as much as, you, as possible to be a bit of a, a linking or clearinghouse for a lot of this sort of complex stuff that isn't core business. Yeah. A key focus for you is the economic empowerment space, but then also, you know, giving those jobs, skills, training and everything like that. How do you sort of interface with the rest of the challenges such as domestic violence, um, early intervention, um, you know, uh, emergency situations. How do you work with other groups um, to make sure that um, such a significant problem um, is handled well and how do you just sort of play your role in that complex mix? Um, well, definitely being part of the different advocacy groups um, and peak bodies. So, you know, we're members of Domestic Violence New South Wales and the Recovery Alliance, and we regularly um, get updates but also meet to determine, you know, here we are, here's what where we are, here's what's happening in the sector. And it's also together and collectively when we collaborate and come together for advocacy and policy change that, you know, government will listen. So it's about working together to ensure that we can um, play our part but also get funding for our sector across the spectrum of early intervention, um, crisis and recovery as well. Um, so that that's how we work together to um, 
uh, going to different conferences, ensuring that we are um, always collaborating and sharing in our learnings. Yeah, terrific. We t- we touched on some statistics from 2020 before that were a bit alarming. Mm. Do you think um, if you had to do like a, a, a revis- revisit of those stats for 2023, where we're at in sort of late September now, is the problem getting bigger, smaller, around the same? Do you have any kind of thoughts on where, where things might be trending? Um, I would say either the same or worse. So, you know, this year alone, we had um, significantly worse um, numbers in terms of deaths when it came to domestic and violent, uh, family violence. So, yeah, in short, worse. So not better. Okay. And so how do you set yourselves up so that your mission is sort of somewhat achievable given the size and scale of this problem? Like, do you, do you set out uh, a strategic plan of things you want to achieve um, or, or metrics you want to hit each year? Or how do you kind of do this in a way that isn't totally overwhelming given the size and scale of the problem? Um, yes, definitely. We we do have metrics. So how how what we do is we um, have just overview of what Arise does. So we have um, something called Arise Academy. And in Arise Academy, we've got um, four different programs. Our main signature program is the Employment Ready Program. Um, and it's a program that was co-designed with lived experience individuals and is evidence-based. And it's eight weeks, four hours a week. Um, so we get our women to do that. So we align that Employment Ready Program according to the school term. Um, and it's four intakes throughout the year. And um, we have a capacity of 40 per intake um, as well. So that gives us an ability to help 160 women to go through our Employment Ready program per year. Uh, And then once they complete the Employment Ready program, we have tailored employment coaching. So it's completely customised and tailored to the individual. And then we will place them into a um, part-time or full-time job according to their skill set and desires. So we won't actually... Even if it's a casual job, we will stay with them until we get them a job that's sustainable. Mm. Um, and then we keep, um, and in order for us to collect data and it also inform policy later, we're, we're also collecting um, the data on once they've been placed and what happens to them 24 months, um, like up to 24 months down the track as well. So to ensure that are they still financially okay? Have they returned? Are they completely living independently? What's happening with their children? So we check in with them every quarter for up to 24 months as well. So that's one part of it. Um, and in Rise Academy, we also have the English program and digital literacy program. So these are for people who don't have the English skills or digital literacy skills for employability. They complete that before the employment ready program. And we've also got um, driving school where we help um, women who don't have their driver's license get their provisional license as well. So that's all under the Rise Academy umbrella. But like I said, it's a systems approach. So we're not just focusing on the employability. That's only part of it, the economic empowerment. But we've also got something called Arise Recovery Hub, where we partnered with 20 to 30 different service partners who provides different other services like mental health counselling, financial counselling, financial assistance, childcare, um, further education, et cetera. So we have a recovery coach that helps um, give the uh, the lady uh the holistic support services around mm. as well. That's that's fascinating and so important. And I wonder if you could speak to the importance of looking at depth metrics and sort of journey tracking, because you talked about 150 women, 140 women uh, per year, and it might not sound like a, a huge number, but 
you know, the amount of investment required to make something like this work on, at the individual level and tracking and following and supporting um, is what's going to lead to significant outcomes. Yeah. Um, so I just wonder if you could speak to the challenges there, because a lot of uh, funders, government, and other people like massive numbers, and they only get excited about big surface metrics that are broad, but depth is so important in impact. So I just wonder if you could speak to a bit about that um, challenge and what you see in that. Yeah, so I guess the challenge is because um, the recovery and healing stage is a very new pillar, and it's something that's newly looked at with both government and corporations. Um, it's it's really hard to get traction to get funding for this, and it's also um, hard to measure impact and demonstrate outcomes because is it a long term study? Yeah. So when you when when it's harder to do that, it's harder to get that funding. But you need that funding in order for you to do that. So yes. um, we've it's a vicious cycle. That, yeah, it's a vicious cycle. And I think that all not-for-profits can speak to that. Um, mm. But, yeah, we've been fortunate. We've had some New South Wales government funding and some philanthropic funding as well that's enabled us to hire um, some people operationally. But they're also very short-term, so they're 12 months. So we're, like, consistently, me and my co-founder are consistently going out there to ensure that we have funding to actually deliver what we want to deliver, which is, you know, enabling, you know, over 150 women per year. It's amazing. And so talk to me about sort of like the national coordinated efforts around this that sort of um, is, you know, either contributing, supporting this work, what's changed, what more needs to be done, and how is it working so far as far as Arise is concerned? Um, well, the what's it called? The federal government's released the National Plan to End Violence Against um, Women and Children in a Generation. So that was their plan that was released. Um, and then they've released some action plans underneath that. Uh, and I think uh, with those action plans, there was a lot of focus, again, on intervention, early intervention and crisis, and that recovery was just, there was nothing really actionable or any funding attached to it. Yep. So I think um, getting government to actually attach funding to it. And also, I would say, like, a lot of... Um, because we're so used to funding the same thing, it's hard to open and broaden our horizon when it comes to funding. Mm. So I think and there needs to be a change in conversation in that. Well, I mean, that strikes me as quite remarkable that there's not any funding attached to the recovery stage or that's not, not yet. as well no, not in that. articulated. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a pretty important pillar of the whole cycle, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so there's a bit of work to be done there. Sounds like a lot of work to be done there. And yeah. who's who's going to fill that gap if government doesn't sort of have funding allocated toward that currently? What are you seeing trends-wise in terms of who's stepping up to support that? Um, we have a lot of different advocacy groups. Um, so I think, um, honestly, in order for you to make any changes in this, you need that government. But also we have a lot of corporations now backing the fact that there needs to be something done. So, um, you know, even corporations providing jobs is helping, but also um, raising awareness um, collectively. We can, if we do that, we can get more funding. Yeah, awesome, awesome. That sounds very wise. Um, and so, thinking about the long term for for beneficiaries or people experiencing sort of family violence, what what does it take to sort of 
end that cycle or to to ensure long-term change? I mean, the literature would say a fair bit. I'm sure what you've seen so far in the rise says a fair bit, but it's economic um, empowerment. What else sort of needs to be in place for, for women and um, and victims of domestic violence to feel sort of safe and to stay out of that uh, vicious cycle in, in the kind of longer term? Yeah, so economic empowerment, um, access to... Um, you know, other facilities. So we've got, you know, court advocacy when it comes to crisis, we've got legal support and community legal centres. But, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure if you talk to anyone who's been through domestic and family violence and have had challenges in the legal system, um, it's a long process. So, you know, you actually get, um, there's something now called, you know, legal legal abuse through the system. So, you know, you got perpetrators dragging it out years, up to 10 years. um, And so, people are still stuck in that cycle. So there's like that justice legal aspect to it as well. And then you've got, um, there's so many different intersectionalities. And then you've got women who are here on temporary visas and they're reliant on their partner to have a permanent residency. So we're working in, you know, now government is working in that space as well to ensure that they they can still get their visas. Um, so yeah, economic empowerment is honestly one part of it. Employability is one part of it. But in terms of systems change, crisis is a very like important and one part of it only. Um, in terms of the recovery and healing stage, mental health counselling, the access and um, affordability in that, the legal p- aspect of it, access and affordability in that, um, immigration aspect, access and affordability, financial counselling, you know, you can start earning money, but then if you have no idea how to get a tax file number, who's going to help you? So, yeah, there there are various different factors to look at. Yeah, lots of layered challenges in there. And and for yourself and your co-founder, I mean, this is a question I'd probably be used to asking uh, medical professionals or uh, mental health social workers or that kind of thing. But do you experience any sort of com- compassion fatigue or burnout given the type of work that you do? And it, it's sort of being quite, um, you know, it, it's heavy stuff. This is hard, real you know, work that, that that's bound to affect you emotionally in some way? Yes, definitely we do. Um, there is that, um, in, you know, that fatigue, compassionate fatigue. But I would say because we see the women's before and after, their confidence increase, them get a job, them being independent and economically empowered, that honestly is worth it. And that's what that's what keeps us going. And how do you um, yourself manage to do all that you do? Because this is not the only thing you do. You're also lecturing at CSI and, you know, our good mate Armine as well. Um, yes. So what what else do you get up to in your mix? And how do you, um, as, as maybe part of that, how do you sort of keep it all together and also find space to, to rebalance and, and stay uh, attuned and committed and capable in your work? Yeah, um, well, it's about enjoying what you do. So I really enjoy the fact of like what I do at Arise. So, um, you know, work is part of it, but everything that I do a part of Arise is it's a lot of, uh, I get a lot of joy and fulfillment out of it. I've also, we've also hired some really great people at Arise that's given us the ability to trust and let the operations run. And that's um, enabled us to work on other things. And for, as you said, I also work um, at Centre for Social Impact, UNSW, um, as a lecturer there. But um, I, 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 the, I really enjoy it, but it's also about using my industry experience, not-for-profit space, social enterprise, social impact space, like all my pa- practical industry experience and putting that towards educating the next generation 
um, and the next generation of social entrepreneurs. Um, that also is a joy for me. And so that's how I balance it because I'm like, I'm teaching the next generation that is going to potentially change lives of other survivors. That's amazing. So that that fills up your cup. Do you have any particular practices around like um, uh, health and wellness, fitness, meditation, other practices to sort of, um, you know, keep you uh, balanced and well? Yeah. Um, so definitely I, I wish I was a person that was really into fitness, um, but I've never put myself <laughs> into it. I've tried. I'm, trying. I, I'm still trying. I'm still trying. So it, it's not that I don't enjoy it, but I haven't been it's able to get struggle. myself into it yet. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think my balance is the ability, uh, the flexibility that I get is um, fantastic. So compared to what I had um, in corporate, so the fact that I get to work on Arise and I'm part-time at CSI gives me the flexibility to do other things um, that uh, that helps with that balance as well. So whether it's um, catching up with friends for a coffee, um, going out for a walk, um, being with my children and being able to pick them up from school, all of those things. Um, allowing me to do that because and also make impact um is what keeps me going wow that's a lot of projects i didn't even think to bring kids into the mix how many have you got (laughs) i've got two i've got two oh wow how old uh one is seven one is three hands full unbelievable i this is part of what what i love about running this show is meeting people who do a lot more than me and being blown away and thinking wow you need to step up and do more (laughs) it's phenomenal (laughs) It's it's phenomenal. So, I mean, what are the ways that what are the different types of ways that listeners um, to this episode might be able to support your vital work at the Arise Foundation? What, what what's the sort of call to action for listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, and as as an individual, if you um, you know definitely donate, you can donate through our website. Um, we're always looking for more funding. If you're ever interested to mentor any of our women, um, you can always sign up to mentor our women. So we always pair our women with a mentor and to help them transition into work again or someone who's never worked before. Um, And then if you're a corporate, we're always looking. So we have graduation events. Um, So we have two different graduation ceremonies per year where um, the women that have gone through our program there we, there we we do a little ceremony for them. We have different panels and we give them a certificate and a gift and they love it. And um, if you're a corporate, that would be, um, you know, interested to host our graduation events or any other events with us. Um, you know, you can support us that way. We've had events at Clifford Chance and EY and they were both very successful and well-received as well. That's terrific. There's a great spread of options, a smorgasbord of options to support this really important and vital cause. Uh, Tazia, thank you so much for being with me here today. Um, how can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Yeah, so you can um, you uh, go on our website, arisefoundation.org.au, um, and also connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, my name is Tazia Alamhanan on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Stick around. Thanks for being here. We'll do a little debrief. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes. 
Are you the proprietor of a business selling shaving kits, meal packs, audiobooks, or anything else of the sort? Have you failed to tap the market of people who love hearing their favorite comedians talk about their boring lives? What's wrong with you? 57% of U.S. consumers listen to podcasts every month. That's a lot of ears that could be hearing about your brand. Go to podbean.com brands to learn how it do. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands, and you could be the one talking instead of me.